Guys, okay, welcome everybody to the Guide to Existence. I'm your host, Gabriel Horan. And today we're going to be talking about a mitzvah from this week's Torah portion in a, uh, through the lens of Jewish mysticism. And I just want to throw this out there, first of all. Today's class is dedicated Le'ilui Nishmas Elana Chaya Basloma, my mother, who passed away on this day 22 years ago. So this is her yard site, and every year I try to learn something in her memory and uh, try to finish a piece of the Talmud, which I did um, tonight. And um, so it's a big deal, and definitely her um, her death really was the impetus in so many ways for me to for my life to take the direction that it took. So I really owe her everything. Uh, that I have in terms of my Jewishness, besides for the fact that she made me Jewish. Um, so, Mom, this is for you. And secondly, I would like to uh, point out that um, last week we had a record, all-time record of like over like 80 listeners to this podcast in the one week. And I actually did put up a lot of different shorter messages last week. For those of you who haven't listened, there are a lot of good stuff there. I was inspired for some reason last week, but what I was most inspired about was really because of you guys. The fact that you're all listening inspires me to keep putting stuff out. And the more I know that you're listening, the more I'll put more stuff. And, you know, I get inspired throughout the day and I just have to get in the habit of recording it. So what would be really helpful is if you're a regular listening to this and I don't know who you are, please shoot me an email and just say, you know, thank you. Tell me something that inspired you. Tell me about yourself. That would really help me keep this going because this really is uh, one of the highlights of my week. So set, shoot me an email, gabrielhoran at gmail.com, and let me know that you're listening and let me know what you think. All right, guys. Today, we're going to be discussing Parsha's Beshalach. And in this week's Parsha, the Jews finally, the moment we've all been waiting for, leave Egypt. And it's really exciting. And they're free. And then, like, suddenly, a few minutes later, they turn around, and Paro is right behind them with an army and chariots running to cut us down and bring us back to Egypt. And then comes the fateful moment, the splitting of the sea. And we're left with a choice. Do we enter into the sea and risk drowning? Do we turn around and give ourselves up to Paro? Do we try to fight and risk death? And as we know the story, the, the sea does not split until one Jew jumps in still doesn't split. And he walks up to his chest, still doesn't split. And finally, when the water's up to his nose, then and only then does the sea split. And as the Jews are passing through, say goodnight, as the Jews are passing through the sea, they sing a famous song. And this week's Parsha, this week's Shabbos, is called Shabbos Shira in commemoration of that song, the Shabbos of the song. So if there's time, maybe we'll talk about song. Uh, last week, we certainly did this week's Parsha. We did talk about song. Next week, we actually have Tu B'Shvat, which is the New Year of Trees. It's a fruit holiday. So make sure to celebrate Tu B'Shvat in your Jewish community. And if you don't have a Jewish community, you can always just buy some fruit and eat it. Um, you can listen to my class about that from last year. And maybe if there's time, I'll make another one this year. But we're not going to talk about that tonight. If Again, if there's time, we'll throw in a little bit about the splitting of the sea and maybe Tu B'Shvat. But right now, I want to talk about um, and one more thing that happens this week's Parsha, the Jews, of course, most famously known. What's the most famous thing about Jews in the Torah? What are we most famous for? Complaining. Bingo. So, of course, we start doing what we do best and we start complaining. Nothing's good enough. We want to go back to Egypt. We want meat. And then um, we get, so we do some complaining a couple of different times. And then we get something called mana, man, this incredible spiritual bread from heaven that um, is completely nourishing spiritual food. And that happens. And then towards the end of the Parsha, and this is the part we're going to focus on, the very end of the Parsha, the Jewish people say the following statement, is Hashem, is God, Hashem Elokeinu, one second. Hayesh Hashem El Bikir Is God with us? 
imayin or not. And then the very next line, so the Jewish people complain, is God with us or not? And the very next line is Vayavo Amalek. And Amalek came to wage war with the Jews. Who is Amalek? Amalek is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. It is a nation distantly related to the Jews, descended from Esau, uh, the, uh, the brother of Jacob. And it is the, the nation that is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. We are sworn to wipe them out and at the same time to never forget them. And that is a mitzvah that is in the Torah. And we fulfill that mitzvah in a couple of ways. Uh, first, we, there's actually an obligation to physically wage war against the Malik if we knew who they were, which we don't. So we can't. There are... Um, those who say that Amalek is the nation that in every generation, like they were mixed up amongst the nations of the world. So there are those individuals who in every generation stand up and try to destroy the Jewish people. It's a suicidal type of hatred of the Jews to the point that many say Hitler, Yamak Shemo, may his name be erased, was a member of this tribe. Why? Because Hitler was even willing to sacrifice his own victory. He could have focused at the, towards the end of the war on the war effort. He could have focused all his manpower on the front against the Allies and the Russians. And yet, till the last moment, he still focused much of his energy towards killing Jews. And in the last few months of the war, millions of Hungarian Jews were killed. So Hitler is an example of that. Another famous, anyone know another famous Amalekite is in Jewish history? This one we know is an Amalekite. Haman, Haman, who was the viceroy of the Persian Empire, who made a royal decree to kill every single Jew in the world on one day. So he was really a, a Hitler that had more, much more power than Hitler. Because every single Jew in the world was under his dominion. And that we know that he was a descendant from Amalek. So Amalek is the first nation to start up with the Jewish people. And they wage war against us. And in this week's Parsha, Yoshua gathers the Jews. Joshua, who is like uh, Moses' disciple. And he wages a war against Amalek. And Moshe sits on the top of the mountain with his hands spread out in prayer. And the Talmud tells us that when Moshe's hands would fall, the Jews would lose. And when his hands would rise, the Jews would win. So the Talmud tells us. We'll try to discuss that. And it says afterwards, the Jews ended up winning the war, that um, Yoshua cut off their heads of their main warriors. And Amalek was defeated. And it says, you should write this down in a book of remembrance and recite it in the ears of Yeshua, who will bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel, because I will certainly obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. And then Moshe built an altar and he named it, God is my miracle. And he said, Kiyad al Kes Ka, because the hand is on the throne of God. The war of Hashem against Amalek is for in every generation. And we're going to discuss these words. This is a very interesting thing. It says, the hand is on the throne of Ka, yud Hey, which is half of Hashem's name. It's also a name of God, yud Hey, but which is pronounced Y-A-H. If you're a Rastafarian, J-A-H. Um, and nobody got that reference? Bob Marley? Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so it's true, though. So um, what's the significance of that name of God? And it says that Amalek's hand is on the throne of God. And famous Rashi, Rashi points out the throne is not God's throne is not complete because the word throne is usually kise, 
but here it's spelled case. It's missing a letter hey. And it says that God's throne is not complete and his name is not complete. It just says yud hey, not yud hey vav hey, until Amalek is wiped out. So somehow Amalek interrupts God's unity. Now again, this mitzvah is to wipe out Amalek if we knew who they were. We do not, so we don't have to do that anymore. If we did know who they were, we would have an obligation to wage war against them um, because of what they represent, which we'll discuss in a moment. However, nowadays what we do is we remember them by reading this Parsha uh, in the Torah when we go through it, but also before Purim we read this Parsha about Amalek. And there's another uh, and as well as another verse from the um, Torah later on in Deuteronomy, which also talks about Amalek, and and we read that also once a year on something called Parshas Zachar, which is coming up in a few weeks, right before Purim, where we remember what Amalek did to us, and by remembering it once a year publicly by reading from the Torah, we're fulfilling the mitzvah of biblical mitzvah, actually, the only biblical mitzvah for, to read from the Torah is to read about Amalek. So there's something so essential about the, the remembrance of Amalek that it is actually the only biblical mitzvah to read from the Torah ever. There's no mitzvah to read from the Torah on a regular Shabbos. Just once a year when we recite the remembrance of what Amalek did to us. Very interesting. Why? Why is it so essential to Judaism? Okay, so let's... One more thing I want to share with you about Amalek is Rabbi Tzadik HaKohen, great Hasidic master, points out that Amalek always attacks us when we're about to do something amazing as a Jewish nation. They attacked us before the building of the first temple. When King David was uh, in the times of King David, right before King David's time, the time of Shol HaMelech, King, King, King Saul, Amalek attacked us and we fought war against them. They attacked us right before the second temple was built in the time of Purim, the Purim story. And they attacked us in this week's Parsha right before we're about to go into the land of Israel and re receive the Torah and go into the land of Israel. Amalek attacks us. So they're always waiting to attack us at the moment right before the Jewish nation is about to fulfill our destiny. And perhaps one can say, controversial as it might be, that they attacked us right before our final return to the land of Israel, which took place what year? When did Jews begin to come back to the land of Israel? 1940, 48, 48, but literally right after the Holocaust, Jews began coming back to Israel in mass. So again, perhaps it was the time, and there are uh, one of the great Hasidic masters says that Mashiach was about to come right after the Holocaust. Again, Amalek rears its ugly head. What the Satmar Rebbe concludes is controversial depending on what circles you hang out in. He says that really what prevented Mashiach from coming at that moment was the state of Israel that Mashiach was about to come after the Holocaust, but the state of Israel, which was created as an anti-religious state for Jews in the land of Israel, which he says is the worst thing that ever happened in Jewish history. So again, there are many different opinions about Zionism from a Jewish perspective, not for tonight, but just to point out again, the significance of that moment when Jews begin coming back to Israel in mass corresponds directly again, right before that moment, is again an attack perhaps of Amalek against the Jewish people. So I want to share with you about seven different ideas that I came up with about Amalek. And if we put these ideas all together, we're going to get to the essence of what they stand for. And by that token, the essence of what we stand for as Jews, because Amalek is directly opposed to the Jewish mission in this world. Okay, you ready? So let's go through point after point. So point number one, the Torah says that Amalek, when Amalek attacked us, and it, this, this is not described here in this week's Parsha, but it is described in Deuteronomy. It says, Asher karcha 
Baderech. That Amalek was Karcha Baderech. The word Karcha means happenstance. They happened upon us on the way. And from here we learn probably the most famous idea about Amalek is that Amalek stands for the word Mikra, which means coincidence. What does the Jewish nation stand for? And by the way, stay tuned, because exactly one month from this week is Purim. And if you listen to my Purim class that I give every year, this is the main message of the Purim class. If a Malik says everything in the world is coincidence, what does Judaism stand for? Well, the opposite of that. Everything in the world happens for a reason. There's a master plan to every moment of your life. So message number one of Amalek is everything's a coincidence. There's no bigger purpose. Chance. Happenstance. Okay. Message number two that we learn from the same word, Mikra, Asher Karcha Baderch, that they happened upon us on the way, is related to another lesson that Rashi teaches in the Torah elsewhere. Rashi says that the word mikra is related to an idea of of happenstance, which Rashi says has to do with um, the difference between happenstance. The opposite of happenstance, Rashi says, is something called kriya, which means a calling. That He says the prophets of the Jewish nation, God appeared to them with a calling. He called to them first. The prophets of the non-Jewish nations, meaning Bilaam, who's mentioned in the Torah, God appears to him not with a calling, but with the similar word, with a mikra, which means with an accident. He happened upon him. So we see from this that that Amalek is all about unprepared experiences. Whereas the definition of a holy experience is something that you prepare yourself for, something that you have the proper mindset for, proper mindfulness, preparation. As the Hasidic texts explain, preparation for a mitzvah is even greater than the mitzvah itself. Because it's all about that buildup and the mindset and the desire to connect that's really the motivation and the drive for any good deed and any commandment that we fulfill. So. Amalek stands for just don't think about stuff. Just jump into it. No preparation. No mindfulness. Just do. Okay? That's number two. Happenstance. Number three thing that we learn from the same word, and Rashi brings both of these first two ideas, first and third idea that we're, that we're bringing now. Asher karcha baderich. The word karcha not only means happenstance, but it's also related to the Hebrew word kerach, which means Ice. And Rashi says that Amalek's desire is to cool us off from our inspiration. The Jewish people came out of Egypt. We were inspired. We saw the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea. We're going to receive the Torah. We're inspired. And Amalek comes and wants to burst our bubble. You ever meet someone like that? You're like really inspired about something. You're like super pumped. And then there's like that one cynical comment that totally deflates your inspiration. You're like, oh. Right? And there are people that get that get off on making other people feel bad about being inspired. And they want to tell you, don't be inspired. Don't be excited. Chill out. That's a malik. Chill out. Be cool. You know, a friend of mine pointed out an amazing thing. My friend, uh, Yaakov Levine, pointed out that kerach, the word ice, is very similar to the the name Kerouac, who's an American beatnik author, Jack Kerouac. You ever heard of Jack Kerouac? On the road, famous beatnik author who really came up with the idea of being cool. What's the idea of being cool? Don't be so excited. Don't be so passionate. Chill out. Be cool. It means you don't want to invest too much in anything. The idea of cool of coolness is essentially the same, uh, to quote one of my 
a mentors, Rabbi Yitzhak Feldheim, it's kind of like the word whatever. You know what the word whatever does? It's like, you're like, oh, I'm so excited. Let's go to this, eh, whatever. It's like, I gave up on life. What's the point of trying? You know, in life, there are essentially two types of people. Mo most people, I'm going to tell you some psychology. This I'm quoting another friend of mine, a mentor of mine. Yom Tov Glazer has this great seminar called the Possible You Seminar. It's a seminar on overcoming your fears. And it's based on like non-Jewish self-help self inspiration and also on some Jewish sources. And he says an amazing thing. And I use this with my therapy clients all the time. Essentially, every one of us, everyone in this world has a primary fear. And we all develop a certain belief about ourselves at a young age, usually around the age of three, again at the age of eight, again at the age of 12, 13. As we're developing higher levels of consciousness, we re face reality. When we're little, we're invincible. Nothing can stop us. We're the center of reality. We're perfect. And suddenly we come face to face with our first failure, our first rejection. Right? And whether it's a kid in the playground who makes fun of you or it's a teacher or it's an abusive, God forbid, parent, right? We come face to face with the reality that we're not perfect. We're not the center of reality. We can't get what we want all the time. And then we begin to define ourselves by that failure. So most people in the world have a primary fear based upon their core negative belief about themselves, that I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not smart enough. And based on whatever those experiences were in our life, we develop either a fear of failure or a fear of rejection. Fear of failure, uh, I'll give an example, is a kid who comes home with a B plus and the parents, B plus, no supper for you for a week. I have a student like this, one of my Russian students. If he came home with anything less than an A, he had to eat canned beans for a week. No hot food for a week. Canned beans. Child abuse? Uh, it may be in America, but not in Russia. <laughs> and uh, talking about child, talking about uh, the crazy parental uh, punishments that I've heard from some of my uh, Bukharian students. Oh my gosh. So, um, it gets much worse. But anyway, um, in America, these things are borderline child abuse. Definitely uh, shouldn't be done. But it certainly gets this kid to be motivated to get all A's, right? Because he doesn't want to eat beans his whole life. And that kid, do you think he's going to have a fear of failure or a fear of rejection in life? Does he feel that he's not lovable or not good enough? Not good enough. Fear of failure. And, uh, well, there's always a both component because ultimately at the root of it is if I do well, then I'll get love. Right? So it's always a, at the root is always a fear of failure, of wanting love because that's the primary motivation as, of, of a human being um, is to feel loved and also to feel competent, to feel good enough. But why do we want to feel good enough? Because if we feel good enough, then we'll then we'll feel loved. I think that primary motivation is usually love. You're right. But so what's this kid going to do? He really has two options in life. We don't want to feel like failures. We don't want to feel that pain and we don't want to eat beans again for a week. So the kid has really two options for how to avoid feeling like a failure in life. What are those two options? become a, a perfectionist never fail again and we all know people like that we might be like that ourselves just make sure to be super motivated never get anything wrong be on the ball all the time but there's an opposite way to avoid failing what's that <laughs> so they can look at the beans as a reward does anyone want to expound on that So the the reframe the reframe I think is a little different than that, Mike. Because remember, we're talking about kids who don't really 
they're not so smart. Usually the strategies we come up with to protect ourselves from pain as children are usually the worst possible things to do. So if a person wants to avoid failing, what's a great way to never fail? What's an actual guaranteed way? Oh, lower your expectations or have no expectations. There's one way to be guaranteed to never fail. Do you know what it is? Never try. If you don't try, you can't fail. So this kid could either become an A-plus student or he could become a stoner dropout, right? A person who doesn't try. Why? Because if I'm not trying, I'm not failing. And you can never tell me I'm stupid because I didn't try. So I'm telling myself I'm not a failure because I'm just not trying. And, and deep down inside, I know I believe I'm a failure, but I can tell the world I'm not. I'm not a failure. It's just that I, I dumped, you can't dump me, I dump you, right? So, or you can't fire me, I quit. So that's essentially strategy, two strategies for a failure. What about someone who has a fear of rejection, who feels that they're not good enough, that they're not lovable? And that's a person whose parents tell them you're either by, by uh, being verbally abusive or physically abusive or by being uh, just absent. A child can feel like they're not good enough, they're not lovable. So what is a person who's afraid of rejection? How do they live their life? So they could isolate and become a loner. Right? A loner who doesn't need anyone. I don't need friends. I'm independent. Who needs friends? Everyone else, everyone else is a loser. Or people pleaser, Mr. Popular, right? Social butterfly, jock. Right? So cool person. So they're essentially these are two different paradigms. And if you look at everyone you know. Everyone fits into one of these paradigms, even your boss, even the most successful person you know, even super athletes and, and, and artists, musicians, actors. Everyone in the world fits into these paradigms for the most part. And there are other fears that he talks about in the seminar. Um, by the way, Julie, to answer your question, he comes here every once in a while. But it's also there is a secular seminar that I think he based it off of called Landmark Seminar. Um, maybe it's somewhat controversial, but you can check it out. It's uh, supposed to be amazing. So, yeah, supposed to be amazing and helping people get over their fears. So, um, so when a person says whatever, which type of person is that? Which type of person in this paradigm? Is it the fear of failure or the fear of rejection? The person who says, the person who says, eh, eh, just chill out. Why do you care so much about this stuff? You come home, you're really excited. You're really excited about something you learned in your class. Yeah, eh, religion's all made up. Who says? Whatever. What type of person? It's a fear of failure person. It's that that stoner, that person that rejected the world, the college, the dropout, the high school dropout, who wants to now knock everything that's beautiful in the world. Because they, it makes them feel better about the fact that they quit, that they dropped out of life. So they have to knock all the beautiful things about life. And my friend takes this talk further, and he says basically that you see that people who didn't succeed in life have to knock family values, people who work hard work, uh, religion, morals, because they feel so They've basically given up on any on anything that's hard. So now they have to become anti everything that's valued, all the beautiful values in this world. It's interesting. Interesting to think about. But anyway, that's a Malik. Chill out. Don't be so inspired. I'm gonna cool you down. And Rashi tells a story of metaphor of a person who's there's a really hot bathtub. He said that was the Jewish people. We were like a hot bathtub. And a Malik wanted to cool off that bathtub. So he jumped into the bathtub to cool it down, even though he got burned. So Malik wanted to be the first nation to, to wage war against the Jewish people, cool off our inspiration. Even though they're going to lose the battle, they took one for the world. And that, again, like we mentioned about Hitler and Haman, it's a self-destruction hatred of the Jewish people. Even if it means suicide, they'll still do it.
to try to destroy us, take us down with them. Okay, so now, part point number four about Amalek is that the uh, different sources point out that Amalek is made up of two words. Am, which means a nation, like Am Yisrael, Jewish nation, Am, and Malika. The word Malika means to cut off one's head. So Amalek is called the nation that cuts off the head. What's the significance of that? So we mentioned last week, whoever was here last week, that the greatest distance in the universe is not between heaven and earth, but rather it's between head and your heart. The greatest distance is the mind and the heart. And that the goal of Judaism is to bring what we know into our emotions, into what we believe, into what we feel, so that it will have an impact on our actions. All right? It's not enough to know the right thing. We all know that smoking kills. We, know, we all know we should be exercising more, eating healthier, studying for the test, right? Less time on Netflix, not speaking badly about our friends. Right? There's so many things we know we should be doing. Maybe when it comes to Jewish observance, maybe we shouldn't be speaking badly about people. We should maybe be putting on tefillin or giving more charity, praying more, whatever, you name it. There's a lot of good things we all know we should be doing but we're not doing. Why is that? Because it's not enough to know that smoking kills. If you just know it up here intellectually, you don't really know it. When you really know something, in the language of Kabbalah, it gives birth to emotion. When you really know something, it goes in to your heart. And then it leads to action. So Amalek is the nation that cuts off the head. Because they want to cut off our head from our heart so that it doesn't lead to action. Because the great, the main mission of the Jewish people is to bring spirituality into physicality. So Amalek wants to cut off that process by cutting off our head. Literally, but figuratively. So how do they do that? How do they cut off our head? So really, one way is by infusing us with doubt. The word Amalek shares the numerical value with the Hebrew word safek, which means doubt. They want us to doubt that maybe it's not true. Maybe there's no God. Maybe everything's chance. Maybe there's no special mission for the Jewish people. In that way, they cool off our inspiration and cause us to cut off our heads. There's another interesting thing that Amalek does, Rashi points out. One of the ways that Amalek attacks us, and there's actually a few things that are mentioned here. I didn't go through all of them because um, I'm not sure how it fits in. But I'll just say it now. We'll see if we can tie it in. I forgot to, to write this in my notes. It says that Amalek would rape the Jewish men that were on the outskirts of the encampment. So they were into sodomy. What's the connection? I don't know. But another interesting thing that they did was when they actually killed a Jew, they would cut off his bris and throw it in the air. They cut off the circumcised part. I mean, the part that was already cut off, but they cut off more and they threw it up. That's what it says. That's what Rashi says. That's weird. Right, as a, I mean, they were into sodomy and then they were into castration. So, what's the what's the connection here? So, perhaps the message is that a, a Jew, according to Judaism, there is an order to the way the body works. If you look at a human versus an animal, there is something incredibly unique about human beings, with the exception of giraffes and maybe apes. What's unique about the human being? We're the only being that's upright. Animals are vertical. 
vertical? What's the right word? Or horizontal? Horizontal. Animals are horizontal. Human beings are vertical beings. What's the significance there? So some of the sources point out that by animals, the head is on the same level as the digestive organs and the reproductive organs and the excretion organs. They're all the same level. By a human being, there's an order. And the order is the head is on top. And that's the acronym, the word melech. The word melech means king. Stands for three things. It's brought down in, in old sources. Melech, the mem stands for moach, which means brain. The lamed stands for lave, which means heart. And the kaf stands for covid, which means liver. And the liver is seen in ancient medicine as being like the seat of the body, the physical physicality. That the head controls the heart, which controls the body. There's an order. That's the idea of a king. A king is someone who's in control of themselves. Their mind dictates what they do. They're not a slave to their desires. They're not a slave to their heart. You ever hear the expression, follow your heart? Got to follow your heart. That expression is wrong. You have to have a heart. You have to feel. You have to know when to turn on your heart. But don't follow your heart. Use your mind and then bring the heart in once the mind has clarity. If you live your life following the heart, your heart will steal you all sorts of dangerous places. Because the heart is kind of stupid. Like a puppy dog. It feels stuff. It gets excited, but it doesn't always know what to get excited about. And it can be misled and excited about the wrong stuff. You need to have a heart. You can't live just with a cold intellect. You need to be able to feel and know when things are right or wrong. But that primarily has to take place in the mind. When you decide what's right or wrong, then you have to turn on the heart. Right? The problem is when people disconnect from their heart completely, they can do things that are crazy, that don't make any sense and have no heart behind it. So you have to live with both. But primarily the driver of your minivan is your mind. You don't want your heart driving. You guys get that? So I want to say something controversial. That really is actually a paradigm between male and female. That men in Jewish tradition learn Talmud. The whole goal of learning Talmud is to disconnect from your emotions and intellectually learn how to break apart an idea and come to clarity on the value system that's behind the idea and, and figure out what's right and wrong, break it apart without getting emotional. Once you figure it out, then you're supposed to put your emotions into it. right? But women are not supposed to learn Talmud, according to Jewish tradition. Why not? So, so one answer that is often given is that women are, are just too emotional. They, they, they can't do that. They can't disconnect. That, I believe, is a misogynistic, sexist response. Because we know plenty of women who do have the ability to disconnect from emotions. It might be harder than men. Women are more naturally emotional, naturally more connected to their emotions. But there are plenty of women who are completely abstract thinkers, who are mathematicians and scientists and physicists and philosophers, so it's clearly not true, right? Maybe it's less natural for women to do those roles, and generally, typically in universities, that it was always less of a feminine type of uh, discipline to study. But I don't believe that's the real answer because women can learn to do anything. I believe the real answer is because they shouldn't learn how to do that. Why? Because a Torah family is made up of a man and a woman. You need a father and a mother. What's the significance of a father and a mother? Is that you need to have someone who's giving over whatever masculinity means and someone giving over what femininity means. And those are two halves of the whole. We need both of them to give over a balanced life to our children. So what's the primary feminine energy that women are supposed to give to their children? nurture? The answer is pure, unadulterated heart. So not that women can't turn off their emotions. The answer is they shouldn't. 
Because for the ideal society, the ideal family to function, you need someone who knows how to turn off their heart and how to just be a cold intellectual and how to think from a value system in order to steer the ship. And then you need someone to then, whose pure heart, who's able to, to implement that system in a loving way and able to see, does this make sense? So I always say this is the, the liberal conservative paradigm, okay? A two-party system is doomed to fail. Why? Because you need a marriage of liberals and conservatives. Who should be making the decisions in a society? The bleeding heart emotional guy or the cold intellectual? Who has the tools to make decisions? You better not let the bleeding heart emotional person make your decisions because they don't know, they're not thinking, they're feeling. And emotions by definition are not smart. So you need to have the cold intellectual conservative who figures out solutions to the problems and you need the heart, the warm heart, bleeding heart, liberal to then implement those solutions, to feel the pain of society, to point out where the wrongs are and where the problems are. But you don't want that person solving the problems because their, pro their, their solutions aren't going to work because they're too emotional. If I just alienated half of my listeners, I apologize. But I think that's uh, – so, so Amalek wants us to not have our head on top. On, on the contrary, he cuts off the lowest part of the body, the most physical part of the body, the, 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 the male organ, and throws it up as if to say you should be thinking with your other head. That – the the body should be in charge. It's the the sexual urges should be in charge, not the intellect. Okay, that's point number five. Point number six. The Talmud tells us, as I mentioned before, that when the eyes of the Jewish nation were looking at Moses's hands, when Moses's hands were raised, they would win the war. When his hands fell, they lost. So the Torah says that Moshe put two rocks under his hands so his hands would not fall the entire day and the talmud says come on you got to be kidding me like moses's hands up that's why the jews won like what is this magic like they only win when the hands are up like what is that talking about so they said no that's not what it means rather when moses's hands were up the jewish people's eyes were lifted up they were thinking to keep his hands up to keep his hands up so the Talmud, when they were fighting the war, when they were fighting the war against Amalek in this week's Parsha. So, so says the Talmud, rather, it's that when his hands were up, the Jewish people's eyes were up, focusing on God, the fact that God is, is above them. And then they won the war. But when their eyes would look downward, then they lost. So what's the significance of our eyes looking up? Again, I think it's the same idea is that we have to be focused on that which is above and not that which is below, similar to the previous idea. Not on our body, not on physicality, but on the spiritual. So the seventh point that I want to make about Amalek, I think ties together all of these points. And that is that the Torah tells us, actually Bilaam in Bilaam's prophecy, refers to Amalek as racious Amim Amalek. The first nation, Amalek. What's the significance that Amalek is the first nation? What does that mean? And so the trans, the, tr the commentaries explain the first nation to start up with the Jews. Amalek's the first nation to jump in that bathtub and try to cool us down. But what's the significance of the first? So I actually had a dream. Maybe one of you will help push me to do this. But I wanted to write a novel many years ago when I was living in Israel and I was working as a writer. So I had a dream of writing a novel and the novel I wanted to write was, was going to be, uh, I forgot what it was called. I think it was called relativity and it was about Einstein. And it, and I was going to show that uh, it's going to, it was going to go back in time from the present moment, an FBI agent who's like solving this like global terrorist organization, which is called the first nation. And it finds out that it's really this Amalekite tribe that's throughout the world, like 
basically like running the show throughout the world to try to wipe out the Jews. And then, and, and the, this, this secret Jewish cult that's teaching Kabbalah throughout the ages, which is trying to spread the, the wisdom of God to the world. And that Einstein basically got his hands on this Kabbalistic wisdom. Because where does he get the E equals MC squared? Where do you get the theory of relativity? It's all straight out of Kabbalah. Like literally. It's no it's no coincidence. And the truth I'm saying that I made up that Einstein studied Kabbalah. But uh happens to be that Einstein at his bar mitzvah became religious and he kept kosher Shabbos. He was a he was a Balachuva. He became fully observant at his bar mitzvah. He ended up losing it later on in life. But uh, it's there's different commentaries about uh, di different you know quotes and things about whether or not he believed in God and it seems like he I think that he really did. Um, once someone asked you know what do you do and he said I f I'm following the footsteps of God. All right. So what type of God he believed in is 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 up for debate. But anyway, that was my vision is to that the Holocaust was started to try to wipe out Einstein and the the secret Kabbalistic uh, wisdom. Anyway. Someday maybe I'll write it, or maybe one of my listeners will take the ball and run with it and write this this novel. Maybe it should be written. All right, so what's the significance of the first? So I think all these ideas tie together. First of all, we have the first inspiration. The beginning is always the most inspirational moment when you start something. The Jewish people are about to enter into the land of Israel. They're about to build the temple. You just move into a new house. You just started a new class. You just started dating someone. You just got married. There's an excitement of inspiration. Amalek always attacks that first inspiration because he knows that's the way to kill you, is to get you in that first moment, to kill that inspiration. Number two, rashes comes from the word, Hebrew word, rosh. Rosh Hashanah, right? What does rosh mean? The head. So again, Amalek wants to cut off the head. The, the, what's the head signify? So we know that the Torah begins with the word Bereshis. Same word, Reshis. In the beginning. And the Talmud says, what does Bereshis mean? It actually linguistically makes no sense. And one of these one of the expressions that it's really a composite statement. It means with racious that God created the world with something called racious. What's racious? So the Ramban said it's referring to the highest level of spirituality in the ten spheres system. Well, really, the second to the highest is called Chachma, which is the first inspiration, the first spark of an insight. Is called racist, the first. They want to cut off our spiritual wisdom. But the Talmud also says racist means Bishfil Yisrael Shanikaracious, Bishfil the Torah Shanikaracious, that the Torah and the Jewish people are both called the first because they're the first. The Torah was the blueprint with which God created the world. Yisrael, the Jewish people, is the main reason that the world was created, that it will be a nation that will reveal me in the world. So, in a certain sense, the entire Torah is created with this idea of racist, the Jewish people, the first, the, the hidden mind of God, which reveals to us that the Torah, the first word in the Torah, racist, is the hidden speech of God we've talked about. We talked about last week. The world was created with 10 sayings. The first of those sayings is in the beginning. Because what's in the beginning? It's the hidden speech of God. It doesn't say, God doesn't say, and God said, let there be. A beginning. It doesn't say that. There's no one to speak to yet. So in the beginning, the Talmud says, is this the hidden speech of God, which reverberates across the universe. And that is the idea that God is hidden in the world. We have to see his hand in the world. There's a hidden purpose in this world. And that is the idea that God is here in the world with us. It says that at the end of this week's Parsha, Yad al-Kesqa, that the hand is on the throne of Ka, yud He, which we said is half of God's name. So the name yud He vav He is actually a composite, which is express, different expressions of God's ex, expressions in this world, of God's character traits. Yud corresponds 
to this thing called Chachma that we said, which is the first inspiration, the mind of God, so to speak. Hey is the cognition, the, the planning part of God's mind. Vav corresponds to the emotions of God, so to speak. And He corresponds to the revelation in this world, what's called the Shekhinah, God's presence, the, where everything comes out. So in a sense, in our own life, we have a mind. We have a right brain and a left brain. Right brain is Chachma, it's big picture inspiration. Left brain is called Bina, it's cognition, it's analysis, understanding, breaking down the thing to its parts and its pieces. That leads to what's called Das, which we said, when you really get something in your mind, it leads to the emotions. Das means knowledge. Knowledge in the Hebrew sense, in the biblical sense, Adam knew Eve, means something became part of you, they became one. When the knowledge becomes one with you, it leads, gives birth to your emotions. That's the number, the, the letter Vav, which is the six aspects of the emotions, which lead to action, which is the letter He, the final letter He of God's name. So Amalek wants to cut off the Yud He from the Vav He. The Yud He signifying the mind of God, the Vav He signifying the emotions and the actions of God. You guys see how this all fits together? So cutting off the head and literally showing that there is, God is not here in the world. We read about Amalek right before Rosh Hashanah and also right before Purim, which is right before the month of Nisan, which is the second, another Rosh Hashanah, according to Judaism. So literally before the beginning, we have to remember to fight against this threat inspiration guys we're about to do an orientation for a Poland trip so i want to just conclude with one last point so how do we fight the force of amalek what wants to kill our inspiration and tell us to put our minds to put our minds at the bottom so one way is by meditating have having clarity on what we believe in getting clarity of our values preparing ourselves and then putting that into action but there's another way to do that and that's the splitting of the sea sometimes we can't get clarity sometimes we have to jump in to the water sometimes we have to jump in and get ourselves up to neck deep in water going with pure heart with pure belief and that's another way to overcome this drive to get us to give up from inspiration and the lessons that we can get from the idea of splitting of the sea is act with inspiration don't delay don't think too much sometimes you just have to do hashem is with us in every moment of our life even in times when it seems when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, Egyptian army behind you, a sea in front of you, don't worry. Believe in miracles. If you believe in miracles, you'll see miracles. The mind can't always comprehend. Sometimes you have to let your feet lead first. Don't think, just do. And ultimately, don't wait until tomorrow. Sometimes you have to act today. Just do it, as Nike says so aptly. So... I want to wish you guys a wonderful week and feel free to hang out if you want to hear about the Poland trip. Otherwise, <laughs> thank you.